0: As mentioned, our text is James chapter 4, the verses 13 through 17. And let's read those verses again. James chapter 4, again then beginning at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if your reaction to this text is anything like mine, you might at first be wondering what's James's problem with these people that he's rebuking. A quick reading of verse 13 and following suggests that they're probably traders or businessmen of some kind, and it doesn't really look like they're doing anything wrong. They're making plans to go on a journey into specific cities, spend some time there, doing business, making money. Isn't that what business is all about? Is James anti-business? Or is he anti-planning? Are we not allowed to make plans for the future? Or is James just getting uptight about a few missing words that they simply forgot to say, Lord willing? And if so, then it seems like a bit of an overreaction. He calls it arrogant and evil and boasting. Well, it's not an overreaction, of course, because we know that James was a very wise and godly man. And, of course, this is Scripture. It's not just James speaking, but the Holy Spirit speaking through him. So what is the problem here? What are we missing? And could it be that there's a lesson for us to learn here as well? Let's try to answer some of those questions this afternoon by considering what James says in this text. He gives his first response in verse 14. He says, You do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now why is that an appropriate reaction to what these businessmen were saying in verse 13. It sounds like it comes somewhat out of the blue. But now let's, in that light, let's look back and notice several things that are there in verse 13. First of all, you can notice that they're talking about spending a whole year in that place. They say we'll spend a year there. They're also predicting, or you could even say declaring, what the outcome will be. They say, we will spend it a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. So they're pretty sure of what's going to happen. And there's no qualifiers, you can notice that. No, we hope to. No, our plan is to do such and such. Or no, you know, assuming all goes well. It's just a straight declaration of the future. We will do this or that, and then this will happen. So if it is a statement of intention, it's very strongly worded, confidently and to some extent ignorantly of the nature of life. And worse still, and I think this is the critical point for James, there's only two points of reference in what they're saying, when there should always be three. Every story has three, the person, his world, and his God. But in here, there's only two the person and his life and plans. No reference to God, neither as the one who gives life nor as the one for whom we live. And that in spite of the fact that our every breath and our every heartbeat comes from God and is given for the purpose of serving God. So James then hits them with that obvious truth, you don't even know that you're going to wake up tomorrow. What makes you assume that you will not take your last breath tonight? See, the problem with the statement in verse 13, assuming it's meant to reflect a way of thinking, is that there's no consideration there at all for what God might have planned. It's only me and my plans. And that's why James responds the way that he does. If we make our plans with no reference to God, we've not only forgotten what our lives are for but we've also forgotten where they come from. We've forgotten what they're for because we were created not just for profit or for pleasure, but to love and to serve and to glorify our God. And we've forgotten then where our lives come from if we're able to describe a year's worth of plans without once making reference to God's will, because it's only by His grace that we will draw our next breath tomorrow. At worst then, we could have altogether forgotten about our God and the role that he plays in sustaining our lives. So to correct that perspective, James reminds us, what are our lives after all? And he's absolutely, absolutely right. They are a vapor. That's the word in the book of Ecclesiastes that's so often translated meaningless is better actually translated vapor. He's not saying that life has no meaning but that it passes very, very quickly. Our lives, they appear for a brief moment and then they're gone. You can ask the thousands of generations that have gone before. Take a look at a gravestone. There's always two dates on every gravestone and just a short line in the middle. And that line summarizes all of our life, our plans, our busyness, our weddings, everything that we do. And there's no way of controlling either one of those two dates. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is right. The race isn't really to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance, from our human perspective, happen to them all. When we find ourselves, like these folks in verse 13, making plans for our lives without once considering whether we might actually live or die tomorrow, Then haven't we lost some perspective on our lives? If we're capable of talking about our lives in the way that's described here in verse 13, haven't we become presumptuous? And if we're honest, perhaps a little too confident in our own strength. And of course, it's not that James is calling us to become obsessed with the brevity and the transience of life and the fragility of our lives because that would paralyze us and then we couldn't make any plans at all. And that's not what the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to do either. How often doesn't he tell us, enjoy your life, make the most of your life, whatever you do, do with all your might. But we must be able to do that without losing perspective and forgetting who it is that sustains us and how quickly it will go by. And so at the end of Chapter 11, the preacher says, Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in all the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And then a couple of verses later, he says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you say, I find no pleasure in them. So it's good to be busy, it's good to have plans, and it's good to enjoy life. But there are ways to do that, that take into consideration the brevity and the fragility of our lives, and there are ways to do that, that fail to consider that altogether, and that even require us to not think about the brevity of life. The difference between those two ways of living lies in our view of God. God made this world beautiful and wonderful, and he filled it with all all kinds of wonderful pleasures. We see the snow falling outside, and it's a delight. It's a pleasure to see it, to feel it. There's the pleasure of beautiful children, the pleasure of hard work, the pleasure of a delightful spouse, the breezes that you feel on the beach. All these pleasures that God made to be pleasurable, he intended them for enjoyment. He made it that way so that we would praise Him and treasure Him as the source of all that beauty and pleasure and goodness. So that as we delight in this world, we delight even more in the God who created this world. And as we see the glory of this life, we see all the more the glory of the God who gave us this life. So it's meant for thanksgiving 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But then, since the fall into sin, when mankind rebelled against God, God brought death into this world and fragility and brevity and transience into our lives. And he did this for the same reason that he created this world good. He did it so that we would be driven back to him. He put a limit to the pleasures of this world so that we would see that this creation is not to be loved or worshipped or served, but rather the Creator. So how should we as men and women and children respond to that new, deep, painful truth that God has introduced into this life, that our lives, every one of them, will come to an end? We should let the brevity and the fragility of our lives remind us that we are nothing and we have nothing apart from God. That is why he brought death into the world. And we should let that reality sink through our minds, into our hearts, so that we actually live before God's face every day of our lives, every day, every moment, the way that we were created to do. Because when that reality has sunk into our hearts, when we know that we will pass away, and we know that we're nothing apart from God, then we may actually enjoy the delights of this life the way that they were intended, because then they remind us again of the goodness and glory of our God. And they point us back to Him. The problem with these folks in verse 13 is that that is not our heart's default reaction. Instead, we and our world and our Canadian culture too, we try so hard to ignore the reality of death and the fragility of our lives. Even in funerals today, they very rarely now put the body in the front because people don't want to see a dead body. They want to think of life and youth and joy. But this life will come to an end. So we try to put the thought of death as far away from our minds as possible and try anyways, even though we know, we should know, it's impossible to live forever, we try anyways to find lasting pleasure from this world, from food, from sex, from business ventures, from plans, from filling our lives with things to do so much that we don't have to think about how quickly it will all come to an end. And so we boast in our plans and we talk about this or that that we're going to accomplish, this business venture or that one or this house that we're going to buy or that one and the savings that we're saving up for a luxurious retirement in Florida without ever stopping to consider what will, ever hap- what will always happen next and what may, as- may just as easily happen tonight. We're a- as much in control of our lives as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, as fish are in control of that net that suddenly comes around them and there's nothing more that they can do. Why? Why do we find it so difficult to live with that daily awareness of the fragility of our lives and that awareness that God could demand our lives from us? We do that because apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we really have no other choice The thought of God, apart from Christ, is terrifying. Apart from Christ, we've been made enemies of God, the very God who created us for his glory and who gives us our every breath. So apart from Christ, the thought of God is synonymous with the thought of judgment, the thought of eternal death, because we know that we've been living to serve ourselves and not for him for whom we were made. But as Christians, that isn't who we are. As Christians, we're not apart from Christ. In Christ, our creator and our sustainer has now actually become our, fa- <clears throat> our father who loves us. So in Christ, we're made blameless and pure, and we have nothing to fear in death. Yes, it is still painful and tragic, to give up for now the delights and the pleasures of being alive. When we die, we still have to let go of that thrill and joy of being alive that was meant to last. It was made for forever. Death is not an easy reality to deal with because we are made to live in our bodies. And even the saints in heaven, even now, for all of the perfection they enjoy, it's not perfect because they long to be clothed with their bodies again. But in Christ, now that we are reconciled to God, we can use the knowledge of our death and the shortness of our lives for the purpose that God intended it when he cursed this world. We can use that knowledge to humble us, to drive us back to our God, and to teach us not to cling to this world or idolize this life. In Christ, the thought of our Creator and the knowledge that we're going back to our Creator It's not just bearable. It's actually delightful now. We can rejoice then in this life and we can enjoy the delights of this life and the pleasures of this world and we can do all that to the glory of God again in Christ in a way that draws us near to Him even while we're fully aware that this could be our last night on this earth and everything we have can disappear as quickly as we received it. We may do so because in Christ... Our hope is not bound to this world and this life. Our hope is in Christ and at the right hand of the Father. So let's turn back to our text with that framework in mind. The people that James is taking issue with, they haven't just forgotten to mention God in their plans. They, they didn't just forget it. They chose to make their plans without reference to God. He had no place in their plans. And it means then that they need to do their best to not think about the fact that it is he who gives them their every breath and could take it away at any moment. So then James corrects this arrogant thinking. He points out the obvious really when he says in verse 15, instead he says you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, James is not just getting worked up about language as if the problem was that we don't say Lord willing often enough, though that's probably true. But he's taking issue with the reason why we so infrequently say Lord willing. Because so often we've forgotten to consider the Lord in our plans. His problem is not that they just forgot to say a few words, but really, that they have no place for God in their plans and in their way of thinking about themselves and their lives. And at the root of this way of thinking is pride and arrogance. He says so in verse 16. He says, But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. It's arrogant because how? How could anyone actually forget that God is the one who sustains our life and gives us our every breath? and the one for whom we're supposed to live. How do you accidentally forget something that big? The only way that we miss something this big and this obvious is if we choose to miss it, if our hearts want to miss it. If we forget to consider what God has planned, it's not because we're forgetful people and have difficulty remembering things, because we remember the things that matter to us. The fundamental problem then with this attitude in verse 13 is that these people aren't interested in what God has planned for their lives. They're too preoccupied with what they have planned for their lives. And that's why James feels it's necessary to remind them of the brevity and the fragility of their lives. What is our life after all? Is it possible to innocently forget what our lives are? James says it isn't. It's boastful and it's evil. We forget to consider the Lord's will when we've decided to make this life and its pleasures our God instead of God and the source of our satisfaction instead of Him. At its deepest level, this way of thinking is rooted in that same thing that compelled Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit. We might wonder, how how could they have messed up so badly? They had one command how could they forget it god had just created them and he walked with them every day and they'd been specifically commanded don't eat from that tree the only command they had at least the only negative command how could they have gotten it wrong well they got it wrong for the same reason that we get it wrong every day when we choose to live our lives for ourselves instead of for our god it's a commitment to human autonomy And it is fundamentally a declaration of independence from God. It's saying, I don't need God, and I don't owe God anything. And here's where we land, brothers and sisters. If God has no determinative place in our lives and in our plan-making, then it's essentially living as if the sky is empty if the consciousness of God's sovereignty and his sustaining grace over our lives in every moment, if that doesn't make it into our day-to-day thinking, then we're essentially atheists in practice, in the way that we live. We might confess faith in a sovereign God, but if we live in such a way that the reality of that thinking doesn't make it into our day-to-day life, then what difference is there between us and our atheist neighbors? We often worry in our day about the growing trend of atheism and agnosticism in our culture. Perhaps we should be more concerned with the atheism and the agnosticism in our own hearts. Every sinner needs to be an atheist in order to sin. Now someone might ask, well, okay, but what difference does it really make whether or not I think this way? I could still recognize that all these things are true, but what difference does it actually make in my plan making? Am I not allowed to make these plans that they're making? Well, the first thing that we should remember is that even if it didn't make a difference, if it made no difference at all, if at the end of the day, we still had the exact same plans as our neighbors on the surface of things, God still cares about the attitudes of our hearts and our words. And that's what faith is after all, isn't it? We believe with the heart. And God cares about the heart. Many of our day-to-day actions are going to look similar to those in the world. We need to work. We need to make money. We need to plan. We need to cut our lawns just like they do. Even if none of that looked any different, though in reality it certainly will, but even if it didn't, it matters to God how we think. What is the first and greatest commandment after all? Isn't it to love Yahweh with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind? And none of that says anything about our actions yet. Our actions will flow out of that love for God and they will express that love for God. So we live to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And this attitude, this way of thinking, it does the opposite it's the the essence of the unregenerate heart which seeks to exclude god from our lives and to glorify ourselves instead of him to worship ourselves and live for ourselves instead of him so if verse 13 describes at least in part the way that we think and the way that we make our plans then it does reveal the remnants of ongoing sin in our hearts the old sinful nature This is not the way of faith. It's the way of sin which rebels against God and wants nothing to do with Him. It rejects the fact that our every breath comes from God, and it rejects the fact that our lives are for God. So it's fundamentally a rebellion, and it fundamentally belongs to the unregenerate heart. So James isn't just arguing over words. He's arguing over hearts and heart attitudes. Do we think and plan like those in the world with no reference to God? Or do we think and plan as those who know that their lives belong to God and are for Him, and as those who are perfectly aware of their transience, the brevity of their lives, and who are led to God because of that? So even if it made no difference in in our plans, even if at the end of the day, We have the same plans. God still desires that we have attitudes and that we use words that rightly reflect the truth of who He is and what our lives are. But in reality, this will also make a difference in our plan making. Suddenly, a business trip to New York is full of opportunities for God to use us. Suddenly, our conversations and interactions are not simply about the weather, the nearest golf course, or the financial bottom line. And speaking of the bottom line, suddenly a budget meeting becomes an opportunity to express what actually matters most and what our businesses exist for. Suddenly a quick run to pick something up from Kijiji becomes an opportunity to build a new friendship, to support someone who's struggling to bring someone the gospel. When we recognize that our lives are in God's hand, that He will use us, then we suddenly realize that we don't, we don't exist for ourselves, but for Him. And then our plans will be made differently. And our plans will be open to those divine interruptions. And if we rightly acknowledge that whether we live or die depends on the Lord's will, will we not also stop to consider whether our plans are, in fact, in line with His will? Will we not stop to reflect on whether we have been living for ourselves? Could it be that sometimes we already know deep down that we've been living for ourselves? Could it even be that sometimes we fill our lives with plans and with busyness and with things to do precisely to neglect or avoid the things that we already know we ought to be doing? You may search your own hearts here. But I believe that this is often the case and I believe that this is also why James concludes this section with verse 17. He says there in verse 17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If we know what God is calling us to do today and we fail to do it, it's sin. If I were to ask you, Where is God calling you to obey today? Many of you would know exactly what the answer would be. Maybe it's a confession of sin. Maybe it's reconciliation with a brother. Maybe it's something else. You know your heart. Do not delay is the message of this text. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The Lord Jesus also taught us in Matthew 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, and go to your brother, and be reconciled to him, and then... Come and offer your gift. Again, delayed obedience is disobedience in the eyes of God. Too easily our plans and our busyness that we fill our lives with, they become a means of delaying our obedience. And so James says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let me conclude then with some words of exhortation. First, if you do see yourself in verse 13, do not despair, but do commit your plans to God. Take to heart what James says because it's true. Our lives are a mist that appears for a very short while and then are gone. They vanish. If that's not something that has driven you to God to find your meaning and your significance in Him, then let it sink in. Funerals can be so powerful precisely for this reason we see how short our lives are and our satisfaction does not come from this world. So if we have not wholeheartedly been living our lives before God's face and open to his redirection and sensitive to his will, then we should remind ourselves for whom, it, for whom we live and who it is that gives us our every breath. Second, Let us remember that it is because we were enemies of God, resisting his will and refusing to do his will, that he sent Christ to reconcile us to himself, and that in Christ we are made pure before him, and we do enjoy his love and favor. So we have nothing to fear about the transience of life and the death that will come upon us all soon. So instead of loving and chasing after the things of this world then and becoming wrapped up in the things of this world so we don't have to think about our death, instead we can use the delights of this world, the pleasure, the joys, and the knowledge, knowledge of, of the goodness of life. We can use all that to live for God and we can use the knowledge and awareness of our death that comes soon for the glory of God and to direct us back to Him. In his presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is the only way to rightly enjoy this life, and it's the best way to boldly face our death. Because of Christ, we know that he loves us, and his presence is indeed delightful. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And finally, let us do what we know is right, as soon as we know what is right, and what we ought to do. And let us keep our hearts and our plans open and sensitive to his leading. We shouldn't fill our lives with so many plans that God can never redirect them anymore. And let us remember, we are not our own. We belong to him both in body and in soul and in life and in death. We exist only because he sustains us and it's for him that we exist. Amen.